Section six of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three, part two. Briefly, Jean outlined the neighbor rancher's conversation. Then Jean recounted his experience with Coulter and concluded with Blaisdell's reception of the sheepman's threat. If Jean expected to see his father rise up like a lion in his wrath, he made a huge mistake. This news of Coulter and his talk never struck even a spark from Gaston Isbel. Well, he began thoughtfully, reckon there are only two points in Jim's talk I need touch on. There's sure going to be a Grass Valley War, and Jim's idea of the cause of it seems to be pretty much the same as that of all the other cattlemen. It'll go down as a black blot on the history page of the Tonto Basin as a war between rival sheepmen and cattlemen. Same old fight over water and grass. Jean, my son, that is wrong. It'll not be a war between sheepmen and cattlemen, but a war of honest ranchers against rustlers masking as sheep raisers. Mind you, I don't belittle the trouble between sheepmen and cattlemen in Arizona. It's real, it's vital, and it's serious. It'll take law and order to straighten out the grazing question. Some day the government will keep sheep off of cattle ranges. So get things right in your mind, my son. You can trust your dad to tell the absolute truth. In this fight, that'll wipe out some of the Isabels, maybe all of them. You're on the side of justice and right. Knowing that, a man can fight a hundred times harder than he who knows he is a liar and a thief. The old rancher wiped his perspiring face and breathed slowly and deeply. Jean sensed in him the rise of a tremendous emotional strain. Wonderingly, he watched the keen, lined face. More than material worries were at the root of brooding, mounting thoughts in his father's eyes. Now take what Jim said about your coming to chase these sheep herders out of the valley. Jean, I started that talk. I had my tricky reasons. I know these greaser sheep herders, and I know the respect Texans have for a gunman. Some say I bragged. Some say I'm an old fool in his dotage, raving about a favorite son. But there are people who hate me and are afraid. True, son, I talked with a purpose, but sure I was mighty cold and steady when I did. My feeling was that you'd do what I'd do if I were thirty years younger. No, I reckon you'd do more. For I figured on your blood, John. You're an Indian and a Texan and French, and you've trained yourself in the Oregon woods. When you were only a boy, few marksmen I ever knew could beat you, and I never saw your equal for eye and ear for tracking a horse and for all the gifts that make a woodsman. Well, remembering this and seeing the trouble ahead for the Isbels, I just broke out whenever I had a chance. I bragged before men I'd reason to believe who would take my words deep. For instance, not long ago, I missed some stock, and happening in the Greaves' place one Saturday night, I sure talked loud. His bar room was full of men, and some of them were in my black book. Greaves took my talk a little testy. He said, Well, Gas, maybe you're right about some of these cattle thieves living among us. 
but ain't they just as liable to be some of your friends or relatives as Ted Meeker's or mine, or anyone else around here? That was when Greaves and me fell out. I yelled at him, No, by God, they're not. My record here and that of my people is open. The least I can say for you, Greaves, and your crowd, is that your records fade away on dim trails. Then he said, nasty-like, Well, if you could work out all the dim trails in the Tonto, you'd sure be surprised. And then I roared. Sure, that was the chance I was looking for. I swore the trails he hinted of would be tracked to the holes of the rustlers who made them. I told him I had sent for you, and when you got here, these slippery, mysterious thieves, whoever they were, would sure have hell to pay. Greaves said he hoped so, but he was afraid I was partial to my Indian son. Then we had hot words. Blaisdell got between us. When I was leaving, I took a parting fling at him. Greaves, you ought to know the Isbels. Considering you're from Texas, maybe you've got reason for throwing taunts at my claims for my son Jean. Yes, he's got Indian in him, and that'll be the worst for the men who will have to meet him. I'm telling you, Greaves, Jean Isabel is the black sheep of the family. If you ride down his record, you'll find he's sure in line to be another Pogan, or Reddy Kingfisher, or Hardin, or any of the Texas gunmen you ought to remember. Greaves, there are men rubbing elbows with you right here that my Indian son is going to track down. Jean bent his head in stunned cognizance of the notoriety which his father had chosen to affront any and all Tonto Basin men who were under the ban of his suspicion. What a terrible reputation and trust to have saddled upon him. Thrills and strange, heated sensations seemed to rush together inside Jean, forming a hot ball of fire that threatened to explode. A retreating self made feeble protests. He saw his own pale face going away from this older, grimmer man. Son, if I could have looked forward to anything but blood spilling, I'd never have given you such a name to uphold, continued the rancher. What I'm going to tell you now is my secret. My other sons and Anne have never heard it. Jim Blaisdell suspects there's something strange, but he doesn't know. I'll sure never tell anybody else but you, and you must promise to keep my secret now and after I'm gone. I promise, said Jean. Well, and now to get it out, began his father, breathing hard. His face twitched and his hands clenched. The sheepman here I have to reckon with is Lee Jorth, a lifelong enemy of mine. We were born in the same town, played together as children, and fought with each other as boys. We never got along together, and we both fell in love with the same girl. It was nip and tuck for a while. Ellen Sutton belonged to one of the old families of the South. She was a beauty, and much courted, and I reckon it was hard for her to choose. But I won her, and we became engaged. Then the war broke out. I enlisted with my brother Jean. He advised me to marry Ellen before I left, but I would not. That was the blunder of my life. Soon after our parting, her letters ceased to come but I didn't distrust her. That was a terrible time, and all was confusion. Then I got crippled and put in a hospital, and in about a year 
I was sent back home. At this juncture, Jean refrained from further gaze at his father's face. Lee Jorth had gotten out of going to war, went on the rancher, in lower, thicker voice. He married my sweetheart, Ellen. I knew the story long before I got well. He had run after her like a hound after a hare, and Ellen married him. Well, when I was able to get about, I went to see Jorth and Ellen. I confronted them. I had to know why she had gone back on me. Lee Jorth hadn't changed any with all his good fortune. He'd made Ellen believe in my dishonor. But I reckon, lies or no lies, Ellen Sutton was faithless. In my absence, he had won her away from me and I saw that she loved him as she never had me. I reckon that killed all my generosity. If she'd been imposed upon and weaned away by his lies and had regretted me a little, I'd have forgiven, perhaps. But she worshipped him. She was his slave, and I, well, I learned what hate was. The war ruined the Suttons, same as so many Southerners. Lee Jorth went in for raising cattle. He'd gotten the Sutton range, and after a few years, he began to accumulate stock. In those days, every cattleman was a little bit of a thief. Every cattleman drove in and branded calves he couldn't swear was his. Well, the Isabels were the strongest cattle raisers in that country. And I laid a trap for Lee Jorth, caught him in the act of branding calves of mine I'd marked, and I proved him a thief. I made him a rustler. I ruined him. We met once. But Jorth was one Texan not strong on the draw, at least against an Isbel. He left the country. He had friends and relatives, and they started him at stock-raising again. But he began to gamble, and he got in with a shady crowd. He went from bad to worse, and then he came back home. When I saw the change in proud, beautiful Ellen Sutton, and how she still worshipped Jorth, it sure drove me near mad between pity and hate. Well, I reckon in a Texan, hate outlives any other feeling. There came a strange turn of the wheel, and my fortunes changed. Like most young bloods of the day, I drank and gambled. And one night I run across Jorth and a card-sharp friend. He fleeced me. We quarreled. Guns were thrown. I killed my man. About that period, the Texas Rangers had come into existence, and, son, when I said I never was run out of Texas, I wasn't holding to strict truth. I rode out on a horse. I went to Oregon. There I married soon, and there Bill and Guy were born. Their mother did not live long. And next I married your mother, Jean. She had some Indian blood, which, for all I could see, made her only the finer. She was a wonderful woman, and gave me the only happiness I ever knew. You remember her, of course, in those home days in Oregon. I reckon I made another great blunder when I moved to Arizona. But the cattle country had always called me. I had heard of this wild Tonto Basin, and how Texans were settling there. And Jim Blaisdell sent me word to come, that this sure was a garden spot of the West. Well, it is and your mother was gone. Three years ago, Lee Jorth drifted into the Tonto, and strange to me, along about a year or so after his coming, 
the hash knife gang rode up from Texas. Jorth went in for raising sheep. Along with some other sheepmen, he lives up in the rim canyons. Somewhere back in the wild breaks is the hiding place of the hash knife gang. Nobody but me, I reckon, associates Colonel Jorth, as he's called, with Dags and his gang. Maybe Blysdale and a few others have a hunch, but that's no matter. As a sheepman, Jorth has a legitimate grievance with the cattlemen. But what could be settled by a square consideration for the good of all and the future, Jorth will never settle. He'll never settle because he is now no longer an honest man. He's in with Dags. I can't prove this, son, but I know it. I saw it in Jorth's face when I met him that day with Greaves. I saw more. I sure saw what he's up to. He never met me at an even break. He's dead set on using this sheep and cattle feud to ruin my family and me, even as I ruined him. But he means more, Jean. This will be a war between Texans and a bloody war. There are bad men in this Tonto, some of the worst that didn't get shot in Texas. Jorth will have some of these fellows. Now are we going to wait to be sheeped off our range and to be murdered from ambush? No, we are not, replied Jean quietly. Well, come down to the house, said the rancher, and led the way without speaking until he halted by the door. There he placed his finger on a small hole in the wood, about the height of a man's head. Jean saw it was a bullet hole, and that a few gray hairs stuck to its edges. The rancher stepped closer to the doorpost, so that his head was with an inch of the wood. Then he looked at Jean with eyes in which there glinted dancing specks of fire, like wild sparks. Son, the sneakin' shot at me was made three mornings ago, I recollect, moving my head just when I heard the crack of a rifle. Sure was surprised, but I got inside quick. Jean scarcely heard the latter part of his speech. He seemed doubled up inwardly, in hot and cold convulsions of changing emotion. A terrible hold upon his consciousness was about to break and let go. The first shot had been fired, and he was an Isbel. Indeed, his father had made him ten times an Isbel. Blood was thick. His father did not speak to dull ears. This strife of raising tumult in him seemed the effect of years of calm, of peace in the woods, of dreamy waiting for he knew not what. It was the passionate, primitive life in him that had awakened to the call of blood ties. "'That's about all, son,' concluded the rancher. "'You understand now why I feel they're going to kill me. I feel it here.' With solemn gesture, he placed his broad hand over his heart. "'And, Jean, strange whispers come to me at night. It seems like your mother was calling or trying to warn me.' I can't explain these queer whispers, but I know what I know. Jorth has his followers. You must have yours, replied Jean tensely. Sure, son, and I can take my choice of the best men here, replied the rancher with pride, but I'll not do that. I'll lay the deal before them and let them choose. I reckon it won't be a long-winded fight. It'll be short and bloody, after the way of Texans. I'm looking to you, Jean, to see that an Isbel is the last man. 
My God, Dad, is there no other way? Think of my sister, Anne, of my brother's wives, and of, of other women. Dad, these damned Texas feuds are cruel, horrible, burst out Jean in passionate protest. Jean, would it be any easier for our women if we let these men shoot us down in cold blood? Oh, no, no, I see. There's no hope of, of... But, Dad, I wasn't thinking about myself. I don't care. Once started, I'll... I'll be what you bragged I was. Only it's so hard to give in. Jean leaned an arm against the side of the cabin, and bowing his face over it, he surrendered to the irresistible contention within his breast. And as if with a wrench, that strange inward hold broke. He let down. He went back. Something that was boyish and hopeful, and in its place slowly rose the dark tide of his inheritance, the savage instinct of self-preservation bequeathed by his Indian mother, and the fierce, feudal bloodlust of his Texan father. Then, as he raised himself, gripped by a sickening coldness in his breast, he remembered Ellen Jorth's face as she had gazed dreamily down off the rim, so soft, so different, with tremulous lips, sad, musing, with far-seeing stare of dark eye, peering into the unknown, the instinct of life still unlived. With confused vision and nameless pain, Jean thought of her. "'Dad, it's hard on the young folks,' he said bitterly. "'The sins of the father, you know. And the other side, how about Jorth? Has he any children?' What a curious gleam of surprise and conjecture Jean encountered in his father's gaze. "'He has a daughter, Ellen Jorth, named after her mother. The first time I saw Ellen Jorth, I thought she was a ghost of the girl I had loved and lost. Sight of her was like a blade in my side. But the looks of her, and what she is, they don't jibe. Old as I am, my heart, bah, Ellen Jorth is a damned hussy. Jean Isabel went off alone into the cedars. Surrender and resignation to his father's creed should have ended his perplexity and worry. His instant and burning resolve to be as his father had represented him should have opened his mind to slow cunning, to the craft of the Indian, to the development of hate. But there seemed to be an obstacle, a cloud in the way of vision, a face limbed on his memory. Those damning words of his father had been a shock, how little or great he could not tell. Was it only a day since he had met Ellen Jorth? What had made all the difference? Suddenly, like a breath, the fragrance of her hair came back to him. The sweet coolness of her lips. Jean trembled. He looked around him as if he were pursued or surrounded by eyes, by instincts, by fears, by incomprehensible things. Uh-huh. That must be what ails me, he muttered. The look of her and that kiss. They've gone hard on me. I should never have stopped the talk. Am I to kill her father and leave her to God knows what? Something was wrong somewhere. Jean absolutely forgot that within the hour he had pledged his manhood, his life to a feud which could be blotted out only in blood. If he had understood himself, he would have realized that the pledge was no more thrilling and unintelligible in its possibilities 
then this instinct which drew him irresistibly. Ellen Jorth. So my dad calls her a damned hussy. So that explains the way she acted, why she never hit me when I kissed her, and her words, so easy and cool-like. Hussy? That means she's bad, bad, scornful of me, maybe disappointed because my kiss was innocent. It was, I swear. And all she said, oh, I've been kissed before. Jean grew furious with himself for the spreading of a new sensation in his breast that seemed now to ache. He had become infatuated all in a day with this Ellen Jorth. Was he jealous of the men who had the privilege of her kisses? No. But his reply was hot with shame, with uncertainty. The thing that seemed wrong was outside of himself. A blunder was no crime. To be attracted by a pretty girl in the woods, to yield to an impulse was no disgrace, nor wrong. He had been foolish over a girl before, though not to such a rash extent. Ellen Jorth had stuck in his consciousness, and with her a sense of regret. Then swiftly rang his father's bitter words, the revealing, but the looks of her and what she is, they don't jibe. In the import of these words hid the meaning of the wrong that troubled him. Broodingly, he pondered over them. The looks of her, yes, she was pretty, but it didn't dawn on me at first. I, I was sort of excited. I liked to look at her, but didn't think. And now, consciously, her face was called up, infinitely sweet and more impelling for the deliberate memory. Flash of brown skin, smooth and clear, level gaze of dark, wide eyes, steady, bold, unseeing, red curved lips, sad and sweet. Her strong, clean, fine face rose before Jean, eager and wistful, one moment, softened by dreamy, musing thought, and the next stormily passionate, full of hate, full of longing, but the more mysterious and beautiful. She looks like that. But she's bad, concluded Jean, with bitter finality. I might have fallen in love with Ellen Jorth, if, if she had been different. But the conviction forced upon Jean did not dispel the haunting memory of her face, nor did it wholly silence the deep and stubborn voice of his consciousness. Later that afternoon, he sought a moment with his sister. Anne, did you ever meet Ellen Jorth? he asked. Yes, but not lately, replied Anne. Well, I met her as I was riding along yesterday. She was herding sheep, went on Jean rapidly. I asked her to show me the way to the rim, and she walked with me a mile or so. I can't say the meeting was not interesting, at least to me. Will you tell me what you know about her? Sure, Jean, replied his sister, with her dark eyes fixed wonderingly and kindly on his troubled face. I've heard a great deal, but in this Tonto Basin I don't believe all I hear. What I know, I'll tell you. I first met Ellen Jorth two years ago. We didn't know each other's names then. She was the prettiest girl I ever saw. I liked her. She liked me. She seemed unhappy. The next time we met was at a roundup. There were other girls with me, and they snubbed her. But I left them and went round with her. That snub cut her to the heart. She was lonely. She had no friends. She talked about herself, 
How she hated the people, but loved Arizona. She had nothing fit to wear. I didn't need to be told that she'd been used to better things. Just when it looked as if we were going to be friends, she told me who she was and asked me my name. I told her. Jean, I couldn't have hurt her more if I'd slapped her face. She turned white. She gasped. And then she ran off. The last time I saw her was about a year ago. I was riding a shortcut trail to the ranch where a friend lived, and I met Ellen Jorth riding with a man I'd never seen. The trail was overgrown and shady. They were riding close and didn't see me right off. The man had his arm around her. She pushed him away. I saw her laugh. Then he got hold of her again and was kissing her when his horse shied at sight of mine. They rode by me then. Ellen Jorth held her head high and never looked at me. "'And do you think she's a bad girl?' demanded Jean bluntly. "'Bad?' "'Oh, Jean!' exclaimed Anne, in surprise and embarrassment. "'Dad said she was a damned hussy.' "'Jean, Dad hates the Jorths.' "'Sister, I'm asking you, what you think of Ellen Jorth. Would you be friends with her if you could?' "'Yes.' "'Then you don't believe she's bad?' "'No. Ellen Jorth is lonely, unhappy. She has no mother. She lives alone among rough men.' Such a girl can't keep men from handling her and kissing her. Maybe she's too free. Maybe she's wild. But she's honest, John. You can trust a woman to tell. When she rode past me that day, her face was white and proud. She was a Jorth, and I was an Isbel. She hated herself. She hated me. But no bad girl could look like that. She knows what's said of her all around the valley. But she doesn't care. She'd encourage gossip. Thank you, Anne, replied John huskily. Please keep this, this meeting of mine with her all to yourself, won't you? Why, Jean, of course I will. Jean wandered away again, peculiarly grateful to Anne for reviving and upholding something in him that seemed a wavering part of the best of him, a chivalry that had demanded to be killed by judgment of a righteous woman. He was conscious of an uplift, a gladdening of his spirit, yet the ache remained. More than that, he found himself plunged deeper into conjecture, doubt. Had not the Ellen Jorth incident ended? He denied his father's indictment of her and accepted the faith of his sister. Reckon that's about all, as Dad says, he soliloquized. Yet was that all? He paced under the cedars. He watched the sunset. He listened to the coyotes. He lingered there after the call for supper, until out of the tumult of his conflicting emotions and ponderings there evolved the staggering consciousness that he must see Ellen Jorth again. End of chapter 3, part 2